0: Daryl Taylor is 50 years old, and he is serving a life sentence at the Jessup facility in Maryland. So far, Daryl has been in prison for 21 years, and he has already missed so many milestones.
1: I got a brand-new granddaughter. Like, I, I would love to be there for her while she was growing up. I watched her one day. She had just started walking. It was, like, the most amazing thing to me. Even though you know, I've seen many babies walk, it's still my granddaughter. It was beautiful. But it's it's something you
0: want to be there and be part on. Daryl is serving a life sentence for a murder that he says he didn't commit. Back in 2020, Daryl was recommended for parole. But because of an unusual Maryland law, he was never released.
2: For decades in Maryland, politics has shaped the parole process for people serving life sentences. — Maryland, until recently, was one of only three states that allowed the governor to overturn parole decisions for lifers. And there's been this ongoing debate in the state legislature over whether the governor should have that power and who should decide when someone has served enough time.
0: Rebecca Tan is a local reporter for The Post. Along with reporter Ovita Wiggins, she has been looking into the history of parole in Maryland, and how it reflects the soul searching that is happening around the country about tough on crime policies from the 90s and the future of criminal justice reform. For years in Maryland, a law gave the state's governor the final say on whether prisoners serving life sentences could be released. And almost always, that meant that governors overruled parole boards. They kept people in prison even when they were recommended for release, until last month.
2: In late December last year, the Maryland General Assembly voted to revoke the governor's authority over parole, bringing an end to what has been a very complicated and often very testy debate.
0: Now, there is this question of whether this law will make any difference for people like Daryl, mostly black men who have given up the hope of ever going home to their families. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 31st. Today, how politics shaped the parole process in Maryland for decades, and how a new law could inspire other efforts around the country to re-envision the rules around parole.
2: I got to know Daryl Taylor first through his family, his wife, Janae, and his daughter, Amber. They were part of a group of families that have been lobbying for many years for the governor in Maryland to be removed from the parole process. And in 2019, after spending 19 years in prison for a crime that he says he did not commit, Darrell was unanimously recommended for parole by the Parole Board in Maryland, which is an independent 11-member board of officials. The Parole Board looks at a variety of factors when they assess whether a prisoner is ready for parole. First of all, not all life sentence prisoners are eligible for parole. Only those whose sentences come with the option of parole can start that process after serving a minimum number of years. And when they hit that benchmark, the parole board starts to look at various aspects of who they are, their record in the institution, what they've done to show that they have been rehabilitated, what they've done to show that they would be a safe and active member of society when they were released. And so after going through something like an 18-month process with multiple interviews, with an extended review, with a psychological evaluation the parole board decided that Daryl Taylor was fit for release.
0: What was his reaction when he heard that he had been recommended for early release?
2: Daryl told me that it was, in some ways, one of the best days of his life.
0: Just that small recommendation is the biggest, the
1: biggest thing I've ever had since I've been
2: here keeping in mind that he spent the last two decades behind bars, he said that in that moment he felt closer to home than he had ever been since he was sentenced in 2000. His wife and his daughters and his father felt like he really was, you know, just one step away, that that he was close enough to home to the extent that they were preparing a room, they were preparing for him to really come home.
0: And then what happened after that?
2: In March of 2020, Just as the pandemic is starting to hit and and spread through prisons in Maryland, Daryl gets a piece of paper from state officials that says he's been rejected for parole by the sitting governor, Larry Hogan. Oh my gosh. And as is customary for prisoners like him, no reasons are provided.
0: What, What was it like for him in that moment when he found out that he was not in fact going to be approved for parole?
2: He said, and he returned to this particular word a bunch of times in many different occasions where he recounted that moment. He said it was crushing.
1: Well, I was crushed because I, I thought this was really my opportunity. Because going in front of the, the, the parole board and having them recommend me for parole means that they did everything on their part to look and research and, and look and say, hey, is there somebody who should be released back to the street? And their decision was yes. This is somebody should be released back to the street. So my thing with the government is, what's the reason for the parole board if they can't do their job?
2: He said that it felt like there was a rug that had been pulled out from under him
1: is so very difficult because when you do everything it is that you're supposed to do, uh, you think you're going to get the results that they say you're supposed to get, but you don't get it. So, you know, that's, a, that's a, a crushing feeling. You feel as though you're right there at the verge of, of getting ready to get released so you'll have some type of freedom. Uh, be back home to get you with your family. Uh, and then they hand you a piece of paper and they say, uh, no, you still got to remain where you are, even though you've done everything. You're supposed to do everything possible. Okay,
2: so it. We spoke to many other lifers who had experienced that moment as well. That moment of being first recommended for parole after spending several decades behind bars and then having that decision sort of unilaterally blocked by the state's top official. And how
0: unusual is that? Like, how rare is it for someone to get approved by the parole board in Maryland, but then to not ultimately have that decision carried out by the governor?
2: It's actually extremely common. Since 1995, basically, there has been an informal, formal rule in Maryland that governors are not going to release any lifers coming out for parole. And that means that whoever the parole board recommends, they're not going to release, and that's regardless of what is said in the recommendation, regardless of what the parole board finds in their extended evaluation process. And what's
0: the rationale for that? Why have governors in Maryland been so averse to letting people out on parole?
2: I guess the response to that is very historical. The roots of this policy were made in a very specific time in American history, the 1990s, when there was a tough on crime agenda sort of pushed forward by both parties. And in Maryland, there was a Democratic governor at the time, Paris Glendening, who declared in 1995 while standing outside of a prison that life means life. And what he meant by that was that he was not going to release any life-in-prison individuals out on parole.
1: I support putting violent offenders in prison and giving what I call truth in sentencing. If you're sentenced to life in prison, it ought to mean life in prison and not 11 years the way it does today.
2: And that policy was carried over by the subsequent governors, Democratic and Republican. Just a couple of years earlier, there had been some pretty highly publicized, horrific crimes in Maryland. There was a lot of anxiety over violent crime. And it was politically popular at the time to declare a very clear, firm stance against violent criminals. And so the life-on-life Life statement actually came after Glenn Denning had just been elected to office. He barely squeaked into his position and his poll numbers were really bad. After he made the life-on-life life statement, his poll numbers actually doubled. And mm. a former advisor of his today acknowledged that it was in part due to his statements.
0: Hmm. And so that approach from governors in Maryland has been essentially the same, at least in terms of the results from the 90s until now. That's right. Is that the case in other states? Is there a system where even when people get recommended for parole, that the governors don't actually carry that out?
2: So very few states actually still allow the governor to intervene in the parole process. Aside from Maryland, there are only two other states, California and Oklahoma, that still give governors that power. And the reasoning for this in a lot of states is that It politicizes a decision that should not hinge on the desires and the needs of a single elected official. The rest of the country, though, the parole process is actually very complicated and and differs from state to state. The reason for that as well is because in the 1990s, a lot of states implemented various quote-unquote truth and sentencing laws that curbed parole in different ways. And so there hasn't really been a significant movement to go back and revisit those laws until now.
0: Why are those laws being revisited now?
2: So, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, it sparked an international response and a nationwide desire to relook at the criminal justice system and life-in-prison individuals, their families and their advocates saw an opportunity to raise awareness and raise attention for an issue that they thought had been long overlooked. Hmm. One in seven prisoners in the United States today is serving a life sentence. That's more than 200,000 people. And the racial disparities among the lifer population is even wider than for the general prison population because sentencing disparities basically compound for people who are sentenced to life. We see that most of all in Maryland, which is the highest percentage of Black lifers in the nation. So this law that we started talking about to revoke the governor's authority, after many years of predominantly Black legislators pushing for it, it passed last year in the General Assembly. Governor Hogan revoked it, forcing it to come up for a veto override. And again, two-thirds of the General Assembly said, no, uh, the governor should not be involved. And that brought an end to a decades-long rule and was seen as a big victory by a lot of these activists.
0: I'm curious what you heard from governors about some of their resistance to letting more people out on parole.
2: So of the four, I guess, governors who have... Participated in this policy, Perry's Glendenning has come out as the most prominent advocate for revoking the governor's authority. After he had been governor, he had been approached by several uh, criminal justice groups who tried to explain to him the impact of his policy. My reporting partner, Ovita Wiggins, spoke to Glendenning and he said that it's
1: um, never easy to admit uh, that you were wrong. Uh, but I can tell you without hesitation, uh, that was wrong. And uh, it's always difficult to admit you made a mistake, but I did, and it was a very serious
2: mistake. So basically, two decades after he set this policy in place, he came out to say that he was wrong and that he was sorry and that he had acted in the interests of politics at the time.
0: That's very surprising. Like, what was your reaction when you kind of understood how much Glenn Denning has— changed his thinking around this, especially if he was kind of at the core of why things are the way they are in Maryland now.
2: On some level, of I found it pretty remarkable that he was able to turn on the issue and not only admit that he was wrong, but actively campaign and advocate for the governor's authority of a parole to be revoked. But there are activists who are far more skeptical and think that he was simply moving with what he now thought was politically acceptable. There are also a lot of Black lawmakers and a lot of criminal justice advocates who argue that the legacy of his policy has already been profound. In the past two decades, hundreds of life sentence individuals in Maryland who were eligible for parole have died in prison.
0: I'm also curious if you heard more from Larry Hogan about his approach to parole in general.
2: My reporting partner reached out to all four governors who have been involved in this policy, and Governor Hogan was the only politician who did not want to speak to us directly on it. His statements to the General Assembly have been that he has released more prisoners than his predecessors and that he continues to see himself as a good steward of the authority that was granted to him. He continues to believe that there's a need for a check on whether life in prison individuals should be allowed to be released on parole. But the General Assembly disagreed. They recognized and they acknowledged that Hogan had released more people than Glenn Denning, O'Malley or Ehrlich, but on principle, they wanted the governor out.
0: After the break, we'll hear from Daryl about what this new law could mean for him and his family. We'll be right back. So what does that change then for prisoners going forward? I mean, for people who are in Daryl's situation where the governor had previously rejected the parole board's recommendation that he be released, does that mean that he finally is going to be released now?
2: There's a lot of uncertainty. And very quickly, when news of the vote had spread to Maryland's prison facilities, there was a moment, a couple weeks, where... All the lifers that we were talking to were incredibly happy and optimistic.
1: To know that this was the the person who stopped you from uh, going home to your family, going back out there, and to know that was the person, and to know that that person is no longer there, that's an extremely, extremely
2: happy moment. And and that has since quickly melted away into anxiety again. Because they're not sure when they go up again for parole, whether the parole board will come to the same conclusions that they did about them several years ago, or whether they'll be changing their evaluation criteria to be more stringent now that the governor is not involved. So the path to freedom for them is not quite clear.
0: What did Daryl say about his outlook
2: at this moment? The last time I spoke to Daryl, it was in mid-January. Omicron had spread through the state's prisons and shut everything down. So he was back in a cell for the vast majority of the day with only about 45 minutes every day to wash and eat and make his calls. And his mood was pretty somber. But he was trying his best, he said not to think too much about the future. He didn't want to let himself dwell too much about what the parole commissioners were going to think about about him at his next hearing.
1: It's back in their their hands. But for somebody like myself who nothing has changed, there should be no, there should be no reason for them to change. But of course, going back in, in, in front of them, knowing that it's all in their hands now, that's the, that's the portion that, that caused you to be like, like a little nervous, because you know you don't know whether they're gonna, you know, change their whole stance.
2: He didn't want to spend too much time trying to envision his life back home, and overall, he said he didn't want to slip into either too much hope or too much depression, because he said if he slips into either, he sets himself up to be crushed again.
0: What have Daryl's family members said about this?
2: Daryl's daughter, oldest daughter, Amber, um, has a similar outlook to him.
1: You know, I don't get my hopes up like, oh, this is going to happen. It's better
2: to just see how it goes. It's going to happen. Yeah. But it's better to just see how it goes because you never know. She's very wary of having too much hope because the last time that she did, um, Daryl did not come home.
1: Plus, you know, you have to remember,
2: I'm 31. And so he's been gone since I was, like, what, fifth grade? 10, so 9, that's 10, about
1: 11. 11. So, I mean, if if you were a grown-up from a kid to a grown woman, like, what would you expect to change? It's you seven. know what I mean?
2: But Janae that's Daryl's wife, is the total opposite. Janae worked for many years in Annapolis. She saw how bills were made and changed, and she believes in government. She believes in processes, and she believes in systems, she said. So she is putting her faith in, in, in the idea that this change in law is going to be what reunites her with her husband, and she's propping up the rest of her family in a way not to give up hope.
0: It's also interesting, Rebecca, you know, you brought up the history of this approach to parole in Maryland and how parole decisions could be influenced by political sentiments and It feels like now that we are once again at a moment of you know, yes, a lot of people calling for prison reform, but also a lot of people who are concerned about crime in their communities and who are seeing rising crime rates and saying, there's something wrong here and we need to fix this. I mean, that I I wonder whether that sentiment could also have an influence on whether some of these people that you've talked to will be able to be released.
2: I think that's a very valid point, and and it's definitely top of mind for a lot of the individuals we spoke to who are still in prison, they're still waiting for the next parole hearing. And meanwhile, we know that there are victims' rights groups in Maryland who are urging their clients and urging crime victims to become a lot more involved in the offender's parole process, to sign up to testify at their parole hearings if they don't want to see them paroled, which they've always been allowed to do, but crime victims oftentimes have chosen not to participate or have chosen to share their concerns directly with the governor instead of attending the offender's parole hearing. So there's a lot of concern as to what might be the pullback now that this bill was passed. Criminal justice advocates that we spoke to from across the country said that they are looking closely at what happens next in Maryland. The Maryland General Assembly passing this bill was one of the the most formal, clearest steps that have been taken in recent years to give life-in-prison individuals a shot at parole, meaningful parole. And in a lot of other states, these debates are just now unfolding, but over slightly different policies, over slightly different clauses to do with parole and with early release Fundamentally, however, they're debating the same thing, which is, what is the role of prison and how long should someone have to serve before they're released back to society?
0: Rebecca Tan is a local reporter for The Post. She co-reported the story with Oviedo Wiggins. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is produced by Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff. It was mixed by Sam Baer and Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. Reviews are one of the best ways for people to find our show. If you have heard a story on the podcast recently that really stuck with you, we would love if you could tell the world about it in a review on your podcast app or give us a five-star rating. We really appreciate it. I'm Martine Powers.